0: Hi, this is Jason. Before we hop into this week's episode of the Speak With People podcast, I want to make sure you knew about two exciting opportunities. The first is, have you heard about our healthy communication skills training program for your company or organization? This is an opportunity for you to invest and build in the communication culture of your organization. When you do, we know and we have seen that staff morale, staff unity, go through the roof, and you'll be able to deepen your customer and client relationships by building a healthy and strong communication culture. The second is this. We're in this series called How to Tell a Really Good Story. We have a free gift for you. If you just go to speakwithpeople.com slash really good story, there's a free download that will help you walk through how you can tell a really good story. Now, get ready for this week's episode of the Speak With People podcast. Well, welcome to the Speak With People podcast. My name is Jason Reitz. I'm so glad that you are joining us today. We believe that healthy communication is oxygen for your relationships and your leadership. So whether you communicate uh, one-on-one to a team from a stage or from behind a screen, we hope that uh, the time today in this podcast will challenge you, inspire you, encourage you to communicate in healthy ways because we know when you do, you really will change your world with your wor- words. Well, today I am so excited because we continue our series, How to Tell a Really Good Story. Storytelling is so incredibly important in life. And today I'm so excited because we're diving deep into the art of storytelling. We're going to unveil some secrets behind crafting narratives and and how do we tell stories that we can kind of hold our audience's attentions from plot twists to characters to settings to suspense, you know, all those different kind of things that make up stories. And so the other question that I think many leaders ask is. Can just anyone tell a really good story? And so we're going to dive into that as well. And I'm so excited because we uh, have an incredible guest today. Uh, he is the author of many, many books, uh, but he's written just an incredible book, story worthy, that has impacted my leadership and communication in incredible ways. And he's written novels, spoke at TEDx events, teaches elementary school. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Uh, I just want to welcome you, uh, Matthew Dix, to the podcast. And thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely.
0: Well, hey, just in case our audience uh, doesn't know, could you tell us a little bit more about your story, who you are, what you do, all that kind of stuff?
1: Sure. I I think you did a pretty good job of it. Uh, (laughs) My day job is an elementary school teacher for the last 25 years. Wow. Uh, I've been publishing novels and books of nonfiction for the last, I guess, 15 years. And um, since, formally, I guess, since twenty. Eleven. I have been standing on stages around the world, uh, telling stories, doing comedy, mm. uh, delivering talks, and somehow along the way, that became a business that uh, snowballed into this weird thing that I do now. As my wife often says, where I speak to you know the vice presidents of Fortune one hundred companies, and I speak to attorneys. And yesterday, I was speaking to the hostage negotiation unit of the FBI. Uh, <laughs> Because it turns wow. out they have to tell good stories too uh wow you know olympic athletes and mount everest climbers and santa clauses and priests and ministers and rabbis yeah, i've <sighs> you know it's a weird thing but i've sort of become a person who has uh, found his way into teaching storytelling to all these people in a way i didn't really expect it was honestly a business person who first approached me mm. after seeing me perform at some charity event and he said i want you to help me with my company and i said i don't really think i can help you i just tell stories on stages and he said oh no you can help me and <laughs> i doubted him but he remains my first client and is still my client today along with many many others so wow open the door yeah
0: that's just incredible. So unexpected yeah and like we talked about offline patriots fan yankees fan yeah i uh i i have yes. the privilege of living like uh, 18 miles from steinbrenner field down here in tampa so spring training games are just fantastic.
1: Yeah. Well, I grew up uh, just outside of Boston, so okay. I was a Celtics, Bruins, and Patriots fan. But I hated my stepfather, and he was a Red Sox fan. Ah. He was a terrible person. So I, I would tune in channel thirteen on the on the antenna and uh, watch Yankees games to spite him. And it <laughs> and it, it took that that yeah. little, it somehow stuck, and so I'm a weird guy who grew up near Boston, but I'm a Yankees fan. I love it.
0: If I, if I pan my camera, my wall is filled with Ted Williams pictures. So even though (laughs) I grew up in Detroit, man, I just love the splendid splinter. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah. it was fantastic. Well, I appreciate you jumping into this conversation. I feel like I have uh, a million questions anyways, uh, just because I've loved your work from afar and, you know, trying to grow as a storyteller, but uh, we'll just kind of start with, you know, the, I mean, storytelling has been in a you know, such an integral part of if human culture for centuries, in your opinion, what really does make a story, you know, the art of storytelling so exceptional, so timeless?
1: Well, you know, the th- The thing about storytelling is we remember stories and we basically don't remember very much else. Mm. You know, you can watch a movie and you are likely if you enjoyed that movie to see it again and again and again, you probably have movies that you've seen 20 times and you probably have 500 movies that you can tell me the plot and the characters and the events perfectly too. But if you go to a conference and you listen to someone speak on a topic, even a topic that you care about deeply, something you're invested in, two days later, you probably can't remember most of what that person said. Our Mm. our brains are wired for stories. And originally it was because we couldn't write anything down. And so in order for our species to live, we had to know that like that berry bush over there, those berries killed uncle John. So we're not going to eat those berries. And that becomes a story that keeps us alive. Right. And so until we could write very, not very long ago when we developed writing, the only way we carried information from one generation to another was through stories, so Mm. we really have a brain that is suited to story more than anything else. Wow. We forget about that
0: so often. I mean, I was thinking the other day about trying to tell my kids stories of my grandpa, cause they never met, you know, my grandpa. And I was just thinking, you know, my generation, my grandkids, my great grandkids, my great, great, they're just be able to Google me, <laughs> you know, yeah. and watch my YouTube videos, you know, I mean, for how many thousands of years, you know, we lost sight of all those stories.
1: Right. I I often say like every single person who, let's say, was alive in 1802, almost every single one of them has been completely forgotten unless they Ah, cured a disease, won a battle, uh, got elected to a significant office, had a statue built to them. I mean, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of people alive in 1802 are known today. And it wasn't that long ago. For you, it was probably your great, great, great grandfather. And you can't tell me that person's name, their occupation, where they lived, it's all nope. lost because yeah. we don't hold on to these things.
0: Oh, that's good. So for you and your journey, when did stories and, you know, I mean, captivate you? When did the and then when did the art of storytelling really take hold in your life?
1: You know, I think I was young when it captivated me. When I was like 12, I wrote a letter to Steven Spielberg after I saw the movie E.T. Complaining about one of the scenes in the movie that I thought was just atrocious. And, you know, basically the letter said something like, I love your movies, but there's always a stupid scene or two in each one of them. So if you send me the copy of the movie ahead of time, I can watch it and tell you what stupid thing you're doing. And, you know, it wasn't until like four years ago that it occurred to me my mother never sent that letter. I had been angry that Spielberg had never responded. (laughs) You know, I thought, like, at least respond to the kid. Right, right, And then, you know, that was 1982. I'm thinking I realized there's no way my mother, who really, you know, had a hard enough time as a parent anyway, had the wherewithal or the means in a non-internet world to find Steven Spielberg's address and mail me (laughs) my letter to him. Right. But, you know, it is a signal that very early on in my life, I was drawn to books and then to movies and Mm -hmm. television. And I was always looking at it through this double lens, the lens of I genuinely enjoy these things. I love what is happening on the screen or on the page, but also sort of really starting to at an early age deconstruct stories and Mm. see how they worked and and, and figure out what drew people in and what didn't work and those kinds of things.
0: Do you think uh, any leader uh, can be a storyteller? Do you think some have like an exceptional gift of storytelling, or do you think there's like a level of storytelling that everybody can grab hold of? You know, some are more gifted, or I'd love to know what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a gift. I you know I I think it's a trained skill. I I've taken the worst storytellers in the world and made them very very good storytellers Mm. in a short period of time. I think the stumbling block for most leaders is it's an act of courage to tell a story. Because what we're really asking leaders to do is to tell stories about themselves. And when we ask them to tell stories about themselves, what we're really saying is, we don't want to hear about the time you succeeded. We want to hear about the time you struggled, the time you failed, the time you were embarrassed. Those are the courageous stories. Those are the ones that require courage. And so I work with a lot of companies and a lot of people who tell me they want to do storytelling. And I quickly discover, oh, it's just a word that they like to use. Because when we actually try to get them to tell a story in a meaningful way, so few of them are willing to sort of step out onto the ledge, you know, mm. take the position at the tip of the spear. You know, I worked with the the CEO of Yale New Haven Hospital. Uh, she was giving a big talk to about 2,500 of her employees. And when I sat down with her and said, what story do you want to tell? She decided to tell the story of the time her hospital botched her husband's knee surgery, requiring a second surgery. Oh, wow. And You just don't meet leaders like that very often. Right. Her response to that story, the response she received was extraordinary. She said, Mm. people started talking to me who had never spoken to me before. She said from the parking garage to her office that next day, more people stopped her to either thank her for what she had done or tell her something about her organization that she needed to know that they didn't feel like they could tell her. Wow. But for every one of those, there's 10 people who say they want to tell a story. But when it comes down to actually doing so, it's, uh, it requires courage. It requires yeah. you to do something that most people are not doing. And that is a hard thing, especially in corporate America for people to be willing to attempt.
0: Wow. I mean, <laughs> that is so powerful. Do you, do you think, because do you think the, that
1: level of authenticity is what holds
0: people back because we sort of innately love to tell stories about ourselves, and to get outside of that, you know, is, is just more difficult. I mean, what, what do you think is that main roadblock there?
1: I think there's a couple, you know, I think one is when I tell people, we need to talk more about your struggles than your successes. That's Mm. a challenge for people who have been successful all their lives and who are constantly sort of speaking about their success. When you're looking for investment in your company, you usually don't get in front of people and say, well, here's the three times I failed. Although that would be extraordinary and probably very powerful in that moment, but people are unwilling to do it. But I think the bigger struggle is it's just not being done. Mm. You know, I I worked with a guy, a CEO, actually, who was going to deliver a talk at a conference, a a startup. And uh, we worked a story that had a lot of humor in it because he wanted to be funny. And I think humor is fantastic and underdeployed and a useful strategy in a million ways. But he sat in the audience and he heard the the first three speakers. None of them were funny. And so he pulled all the humor out of his talk and instead delivered what everyone else was doing. And I said to him, well, the good news is you will have been forgotten. So if you were bad, don't worry, no one can remember anything you said, right? right. But that's sort of what everyone's looking for is, I wanna be extraordinary, but I wanna do it in the same way everyone else is doing it. Or I want you to magically guarantee me that what I'm about to do will be okay. And I can't do either one of those things, you know? So you have to be willing to step out and do the hard thing in order to be a a storyteller or a funny speaker or all these things I want people to be.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you bring up humor. Uh, So incredibly important. You know, can anyone – be funny. Can anyone bring, you know, uh, laughter to a story or, you know, is it something that they can learn? Cause I mean, some people are pretty dull, <laughs> pretty boring, you know, and they, they tell um,
1: themselves I'm not fun. You know, I think the only thing they lack are the strategies mm. to deconstruct humor and then repeat those strategies. So I teach 25 strategies for humor in one of the workshops <sighs> I do, and they're all repeatable. They're all easy to do. You know, I'm an elementary school teacher, so I believe in taking large, complex processes and breaking them down into small, repeatable parts. Wow. And you don't even need all 25. If you learn five of them, you're already going to be funny. Now, I'm not guaranteeing that you're going to be funny sort of in a spontaneous, at a dinner party, suddenly you're the life of the party kind of person. Yep. It's probably going to start with, I'm going to craft humor into my talks in a strategic way. But you do that enough, you're going to find strategies that come naturally to you. And then pretty soon, you will find that you're going to be a funnier person. I think funny people tend to be better listeners than most people. We listen mm. to what makes us laugh, and then we ask ourselves, how can I reproduce what that person just did? And the better the listener, probably the funnier the person. But I can teach people how to do it. There's, there's some very definable, simple-to-use strategies that you can start using today and instantly be funnier than you were yesterday. Wow.
0: Wow. And, I mean, humor, laughter has such a way
1: to build trust with the audience. Uh, and yeah, it- well, it alters brain chemistry. When you make someone laugh, there's, there's, I'll say there's three, there's actually more than three, but there's three significant chemicals that are released in the brain. Whenever someone makes you laugh, one of them makes them feel better and they mm. attach that good feeling to the source of the humor, which is you. So that means they like you more. Yeah. One makes them feel better about the world. They feel a little safer in the space they're in. And the third one improves cognition, meaning Mm. they're going to understand what you are saying better because you've made them laugh. So it really is sort of like a drug for the brain. And any speaker that's not using humor, particularly early in a talk, when you want people to instantly sort of be attached to you and like you and feel that you're intelligent. That's another sign of humor. People think funny people are automatically smart when I know a lot of funny people who are not, (laughs) but you can be, you can get away with it if you're making people laugh. Right? So all of that is extraordinarily powerful and easy to use. And again, though, the problem is in the business world, there's a great fear that if I try to be funny and no one laughs, I'm going to feel bad about myself and look foolish. Mm. And even if that was true, which I don't think is the case, if you're actually incorporating humor into your story, oftentimes, even when you attempt to be funny, and there's no laugh, you're still telling a story. So it's okay. But even if that was true, even if you tried to be funny, and no one laughed, at least now you're going to be memorable, because almost Uh. every speaker in every corporate setting in the world, for the rest of eternity, are utterly forgettable human beings and every single thing they say is ultimately forgotten. So even if you fail and flop miserably, at least people will remember you. And that is not a bad thing.
0: Absolutely. Wow. I, um, just on a side note, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, always wanted to be a comedian. I'm, I don't have funny one liners, you know, so my stories, you know, I draw things out and, you know, just, those everyday things that happen. And so, um, I always wanted to audition for America's got talent as a storyteller, you know, cause uh-huh. there's always comedians. There's always, you know, but it'd be great. I mean, to see like an actual, you know, that storytelling, you know, type of, uh, gift, uh, people to be able to use. Cause, uh,
1: you know, it's just, it's just magical when they really work. <laughs> yeah. I, I, com- I agree completely. I, I, you know, my wife has said sometimes, She said, you're kind of an unlikable person who tells a good story. And, you know, there's something to be said for that, you know, because I tend to be a rather opinionated human being who says things and knows he says things that will sort of set people awry. But because I'm also a storyteller and I am vulnerable and authentic and honest and I'm willing to share my failures and embarrassments and shames, I can get away with more than right. than someone who's unwilling to do those things.
0: Right. It's amazing, you know. Once you share some of those things, people lean in; they're trusting you. What you'll be able to say to them, you know, is is just, you know, you'll be able to speak truth in in quite a powerful way.
1: Right. Even my my TEDx talks. If you ever watch any of them, they always open with a story that is related to the idea I'm going to be speaking about. But I open with a story because by the time the story's done the audience is prepared to receive any idea I have and are so much more likely to believe in what I'm about to say because Mm. I've just shared an entertaining, vulnerable, you know, genuinely authentic story about me. And now they feel they know me in a way that most people don't. It's funny how like people tell me secrets all the time. I tell a story on a stage and then someone just comes up to me and without right. even introducing, they just, you know, I had a woman just before the pandemic, I told a story about bad parenting and I got off the stage and a woman came up to me and said, without even introducing herself, she said, every time I go into someone's house, even my own mother's house, I have to steal something. <laughs> and then she grabbed me and pulled me in close because people <laughs> touch me all the time. Cause they feel like they know me. They, they, right. they have right. my arms. Like my wife sees it happening. She pulled me in and she whispered, yelled to me. She said, I've never told anyone that before. So this 40-year-old woman dealing with mental illness, a real mental illness, decided one night in New York, the guy who just talked about bad parenting is the one I'm going to share my life secret with. And that happens to me all the time because I tell stories. Wow. Wow. Uh, you no, know, I could so have crazy. sold her anything if I was in business at that point, right? <laughs> right. I could have said, listen, I'll hear your story. And also, I think you should change the gutters in your house and I've got a company that can replace all your right. gutters. She would have said, yes, please. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible.
0: Oh, yeah. so take us into like um, the primary components of a story. What, what are the, you know, the main parts of a really good story?
1: Well, most people sort of don't know what a story is, which is really the fundamental problem. Most people think a story is I'm going to report on my life. Mm. I'm going to tell you about a time in my life where something extraordinary or not extraordinary happened. And I'm going to take you through that moment chronologically. Whereas a real story is about change over time. It's, I used to be one kind of a person, or I used to think one kind of thing and some stuff happened. And now I see the world differently, or I see myself differently. That has to be what happens for a story to make any sense and that's for every movie you ever watch every book you ever read and every serialized television show that you ever watch these are characters who start in one place and end in another place and that's what is going to resonate with people that's why we remember those stories where if you've got a buddy like i had a guy who once told me the story about driving his car through the garage and into the pool accidentally <laughs> you know through the back of his garage into the swimming pool and i said to him like well what did that mean to you And he said, well, I got lucky because I got to tell a really cool story at bars for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I know. But like on a personal, intellectual, emotional, spiritual level, did you learn something? Did you, were you a different person before you went through the garage than after? And he was like, nah, I'm just really happy. I get to tell a good beer story. And so like, the only reason I remember that story is because of how difficult I found that person to be and how I yeah. couldn't get him to find any meaning in that moment. Hmm. Otherwise, though, those stories get forgotten immediately. Those drinking stories, yeah. those crazy night stories, they're entertaining, but they're like candy. You consume them and they're gone, you know, whereas a story that actually reflects some change over time, I, you know, some real hmm. growth or or actually de evolution is just as good. I used to be an amazing person and now I'm a miserable soul. That's a great story too. If you don't have that, people don't remember it and it doesn't mean things to people and it can't be relatable to people. You can't relate to driving through a garage and ending up in a pool unless that person says, I used to think my father would never forgive me for any mistake I made and then I ended up in the pool and somehow my father actually forgave me instantaneously. Now, if he had said that everyone goes, oh. Right. And it doesn't even have to be your father. It can just be you're a father and you realize I need to find forgiveness in my heart. Or it could just be I wish my boss would forgive me with the ease that that man's father. You can relate to the story now in a way that the plot itself is not relatable. Boy,
0: that's so good. So when it comes to stories, you know, characters obviously play a, a pretty vital role. What are some of the key ingredients, you know, to uh, kind of crafting some, you know, memorable characters or just, you know, um, painting the picture of who the character is, what they're about. Because so many people, I mean, they make, you know, I, I was doing some coaching for a client recently and they just said, I said, well, tell me a story. And they said, well, you're going to love the story. It's really funny. I was like, okay, well, well don't start with that. but Right, don't you know, start with that. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't ever start with that. But yeah. then they started, you know, painting the picture of the characters and – You know, it was. I was like, okay, hey, let's let's take us to the room. You know, where was the character? So, you know, what are some of those you know ways to create memorable, you know, compelling characters?
1: Well, you know, I I think that one of the things that people make a mistake about is they often provide too much detail. Mm. I actually think that fewer adjectives yield more vivid stories. Oddly, you know, if I tell you, you know, getting away from characters for a second, if I say I'm standing in a kitchen and I tell you nothing else about the kitchen, you can see that kitchen perfectly clearly because it's going to be your kitchen, your parents' kitchen, a kitchen you see on TV. And unless the particularities of that kitchen are relevant to my story, I actually want to harness your imagination and let you use a kitchen that you're most familiar with because that's going to be exceedingly vivid to you. Uh So if I'm describing a story where I meet a beautiful woman, I'm going to say a beautiful woman walks into the room and if her physical appearance is not related to the story in any way except for her beauty i'm Mm -hmm. gonna leave it just like that and you are gonna put in your platonic version of a beautiful woman and you're gonna see it with a lot more clarity than i could ever achieve by trying to describe her right yep like i can't stand it when people start a story and they tell me a beautiful woman walks in and she's got the bluest eyes i've ever seen Mm. well what you've essentially told me as a listener is She has blue eyes. Don't forget that because I gave you that detail. So it must be important at some point. And by the way, that's going to take away a little of your bandwidth along the way. Mm. Like you were remembering blue eyes is going to steal your ability to pay attention to other things. And if at the end of the story, blue eyes are not relevant to the story, you've just wasted my time. You have wasted my energy. You've probably annoyed me, right? Right. Now they probably say blue eyes for one of two reasons. One is they love their wife, their wife's blue eyes and they want to say it. Mm -hmm. But when we're storytellers, we're not in the business of saying what we want to say. We're in the business of saying what the audience wants to hear, right? The other reason they're probably doing blue eyes is because in first grade, when you learn how to write, teachers weirdly believe that more writing is better writing. So when you bring up a story to your teacher, they say this awful phrase, they say, add details. But Mm. no one has ever finished a book in the history of the world and thought, boy, I wish there were more details in that book. It wasn't quite as good because the eye color wasn't expressed often enough, right? But that's what we're taught to write when it comes to stories is like add hair color. And all of that's irrelevant. So when we're trying to create characters, what we want to do, or when we're trying to convey characters to people, we want to find something that is essentially of their essence. And Mm. it's often not physical. It is often You know, my wife can't find her way out of a paper bag, right? Uh My wife has never met a human being who she can't have a very deep and meaningful conversation with in about four seconds, right? My wife is someone who uh, used to make a giant mess whenever she cooked dinner until I started cooking dinner and everything was clean at the end. And so now everything's clean when she's done, but she refuses to acknowledge that it was my influence that changed her behavior. Right, those are things about my wife that say something about my wife and allow you access to who she is as a person and not sort of what she looks like or you know what her job is, unless it's relevant to the story. I'm going to choose those important essence qualities and they're going to be related to the story. I'm not going to tell you my wife can't find her way out of a paper bag unless it's a story about her getting lost, right? And I'm not going to tell you that. You know, my wife is an elementary school teacher, a kindergarten teacher, unless the fact that she being a kindergarten teacher is relevant to the story. Mm. So we ask ourselves what's the simplicity that we can provide that will be relevant to the story, but allow us to still harness the imagination of our audience so that you don't know what my wife, Alicia, looks like, but I don't care if you see her as the brunette yeah. that she is. If you want to see her as a six foot two blonde, you know, and that is your version of beauty, and that works in my story. I'm going to let you have that view. I don't it doesn't matter to me and your view is going to be vivid, more vivid than anything I try to create. Wow.
0: That's so true. <clears throat> I think of, you know, times when I've told a story and it's just rambled on and rambled on and rambled on and I just made I I think back and I'm like I made those mistakes, too many adjectives, too many details and I just I robbed the audience of components where they could have been putting things together on their own.
1: Yeah, I like nouns that come with adjectives pre-attached, so I try to avoid all adjectives, and when I use one, it's going to be relevant in some way for the story. Otherwise, leverage the imagination of your audience because that imagination is more powerful than any number of words you can collect.
0: Wow, wow, that's incredible! Uh, just because I, 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 I'm super curious, and and I've spoke with uh, lots of preteen audiences, and then teen audiences, and then adults. You know, how do you go about? changing your material or do you change your delivery? You know, I mean, every day you get to communicate to preteens and then, you know, you're coaching a CEO, you know, how do you, how do you adjust or make that change or is there really not much of a, of a change?
1: Not much of a change. I'm a little more uh, blunt, I guess, and specific with kids. Like Mm -hmm. when I tell a story, I'm probably telling it for a particular reason, a lesson. and, I might be telling a story to a, an adult audience for the same reason, but adult audiences don't want to hear me say at the end of a story, and the lesson I'd like you to take away from that is, right. so I'm telling a story to entertain them with the hopes that they're going to take something from it for their own life. With kids, I'm going to bonk them over the head with the lesson, because they yeah. just don't have that same level of introspection and nuance. Frankly, some adults don't either, but if they don't possess that introspection (laughs) and nuance, bonking them over their head when they're 37 is not going to make a difference at this point. Right. So I'm just a little more deliberate. I'm also very cognizant when I'm speaking to young people about the curse of knowledge, the idea Mm. that uh, I am going to say things that will make no sense to them unless I define them. So when I Mm. say I come out of a record store, you and I know what a record store is, but when I say it to students, I'm going to say, I come out of a record store which is a physical establishment that once sold m- music in a physical form that you could put in a bag right. and then later put in a machine and it would play the music for you. Wow. Right? And I'll watch them to see if they nod and go, oh, and if they're still like quizzically looking at me, I'll be like, it was a store. It was a store where you bought music when it wasn't <laughs> digital. Are we good? So that awareness is going to yeah. be important. It's, in- it's important for um, adults too. One of my friends was just telling a story in New York And she told me that her friend's pregnancy was an atopic pregnancy. Hmm. And I knew I had heard that before because I've had two kids and I was sort of aware of it. But I wasn't aware of it enough to know what it meant. And I told her, I said, for 30 seconds while you were speaking, I was trying to go through my pregnancy vocabulary to figure out what that meant. So I said, in that case, you have to know she's having an atopic pregnancy, which means, and you're going to have to define it. So as storytellers, we have to constantly quiz ourselves as to what I have to say. The worst one are cell phones. You know, I have a story where I say I'm stuck on the side of a highway in 1991 and there's no way for me to get help. And when I get off the stage, all these like, honestly, 25 year olds will come up to me and say, why don't you just use your cell phone? Right. And I used to say, well, it was 1991. And they go, yeah. And I go, my God. (laughs) So now my story has to be, it's 1991. So there are no cell phones, which I hate saying because essentially I'm bringing in technology that didn't exist at the time right. and being required to say it. you know, I'm right. creating an anachronism of sorts in my story, wow. but I have to do it. But other than those things, the stories I tell to kids are very much similar to the stories they tell to adults, although the content might be different. You know, my, yep. the time I had to provide a genetic sample Prior right. to um making babies, that is not a story I tell my students, but that right. is when I'm willing to tell adults.
0: Right, right, right. So good. I I have so many more questions. Our time's running to an end. I want to honor, honor our time. But I you brought up with with uh, your kids, how important was parenting? Uh, I'm sorry how how important is storytelling in your parenting? Like, you know, have you told you know as your kids grown up, made storytelling an important part of it? I'm I'm always so curious about that.
1: Yeah, it's very important. My, my mom passed away in 2007, before my kids were born. Mm. And um, I wasn't sort of aware of it at the time. But when you lose a parent, what essentially happens is the hard drive crashes on any story that you didn't get already or any question that you never asked. Wow. And so suddenly being aware of that, particularly when my wife got pregnant, and she gave birth through an emergency C-section, I found myself wondering, hey, how was I born? And did I nurse? Like, or was I bottle fed? And when did I walk? And what was my first word? And all of that kind of stuff. And I didn't have any of it. And so I I suddenly understood if I don't tell my kids everything and I don't commit it in writing in some places, I wrote to my kids for the first eight years of their lives and then had it produced in these beautiful books that sit in our house now. But my kids know my stories and they love hearing them again and again. And so I just think it's critical as parents that we're sharing those things because you know as terrible as it is i can get hit by a bus tomorrow and yes yeah. i have either made the choice now to be known to my children or to not be known and f- and frankly my mom made the choice not to be known she just didn't tell me very much and i was too stupid to ask thinking she was going to be around a lot longer than she was so as part of parenting i have made it my life goal to make sure that my kids know me as well as they possibly can in the event a plane falls on my head tomorrow Wow
0: that's so incredibly powerful uh thank you so much before I before I let you go and uh, I thought we'd just do a couple of rapid fire questions let our audience kind of sure. get,
1: you know keep getting to know you but uh, who who's one of your favorite
0: storytellers do you have a favorite
1: storyteller? Uh, Steve Zimmer, who's a storyteller in New York City, is my favorite storyteller. If you go to YouTube, you can watch some of his stories. Actually, if you go to TheMoth.org, I think they have about eight of his stories in audio form that you can listen to. I just think he's extraordinary.
0: Awesome. Well, and we'll make sure we link that in the show notes. Uh, if you're a podcast uh, person, is there one uh, for your development or one for your guilty pleasure that, I mean, you just, you just love that you would highly recommend to other, other leaders, communicators?
1: Yeah. I mean, I love many, many of them, I guess right now, cause I'm working on a solo show, sort of a 90 minute solo show. Mike Brabiglia is one of my favorite storyteller comedians and he has a podcast called working it out where he uh, talks with other creative people about their process. So I, Enjoy Mm. that one. But honestly, I enjoy about 50 more of them too. So (laughs) Uh, I listened to Today Alone to Revisionist History, which is Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Mm -hmm. I listened to Freakonomics and heard Satya Nadell of Microsoft talking about the strategy for his company moving forward. And I listened to This Week in Esoteric Political History. I learned about Superman versus the Ku Klux Klan, which was a series in the 1950s where superman battled the kkk except it was an alternate version of the kkk so all of those were just today that i listened to (laughs) i love it
0: i love it fantastic okay last question if tom brady wouldn't have left the patriots would he have finished on a high note you know his last couple seasons with them
1: he would have had one more championship i'm pretty sure i think that you know as a patriot season ticket holder i've been very in, and, and I used to live one town over from Foxborough so, you know even when I wasn't a season ticket holder I would drive to the stadium buy a ticket because we were terrible and I could just walk in at any time I wanted wow. yeah but yeah I think that the defense of the New England Patriots has been strong enough over the last three years that a reasonable quarterback and our outstanding running back would have been enough to get him at least one more championship wow yeah. Well, <laughs> I agree.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Can you uh, point our listeners
1: somewhere online where they can find more about you and what you do? Sure. If they go to MatthewDix.com, you can kind of find everything there. If you're looking particularly for storytelling, if you go to Storyworthy md my initials, MD.com, there's lots of free resources. There's courses there. There's uh, lots of links to places where I teach about storytelling. So you can find a lot of information, particularly on storytelling there.
0: Fantastic, and we'll link. I'll make sure we link all that in the show notes, so we uh, we have that available. Well, thank you again for joining us. This was just a privilege. I took uh, pages of notes, and I'm going to go back through and grab some more because uh, I hope for our listeners, but boy, for me, it was uh, pretty impactful. So, thank you.
1: I'm really glad. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely,
0: and thank you to our listeners for listening every single week. Uh, make sure if you have missed it. Um, The Pathway is out and it is available for you if you need to communicate um, in public, your boss has asked you to give a presentation, you have to craft a new sales presentation, you have to do a keynote address, but you want to make sure that you kind of craft your public speaking skills, go to speakwithpeople.com slash The Pathway. It's a step-by-step guide to become a more confident, clear, and captivating communicator. Well, thanks again for being a part of the podcast. Really appreciate every time you listen, every time you share, and every single one of your reviews. Again, this podcast exists because uh, healthy communication is oxygen for our relationships and our leadership. So whether you communicate one-on-one from a stage to a team or from behind a screen, we hope that our time today really encouraged you and inspired you to, Uh, communicate in healthy ways, and change your world with your words. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.